Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, and I'm here today with my old friend, Scott Stewart. Scott is a seasoned protective intelligence practitioner with 35 years of analytical, investigative, and security experience. Before joining the executive ranks of Torchstone Global, Scott led global analysis of terrorism and security topics at Stratfor from 2004 to 2020. Prior to his time at Stratfor, Mr. Stewart was the protective intelligence coordinator for Dell and served as a member of Michael Dell's executive protection team. Scott also spent 10 years as a special agent with the U.S. Department of State's Diplomatic Security Service, where he was involved in a large number of high-profile terrorism and protective intelligence investigations. He was the lead DSS investigator assigned to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the follow-up New York City bomb plot. He also led a team that assisted the Argentine investigation of the 1992 bombing of the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires, Argentina, among many other cases. Mr. Stewart also served as the Deputy Regional Security Officer in Guatemala City and was responsible for embassy and diplomatic security at that post, as well as in Belize City. We're excited to have Scott on the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast today. Scott, welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks for having me, Fred. Scott, we're certainly in a unique window of time here on the heels of the Nashville bombing and certainly the uh, horrific events at the U.S. Capitol. I thought it would be a good time to talk to you about the attack cycle. Could you break that down for us? Yeah, Fred, I, I think uh, that, that you're really accurate on that uh, because, you know, when, when we think about what's going on and, and whether it's a lone actor uh, like, like what we had in Nashville or whether it's, you know, some sort of more sophisticated group, you know, like, like some of the Boogaloo boys uh, planning things together, uh, no matter what type of threat actor that we're talking about, they really are constrained by the attack cycle as they are planning these attacks. And uh, more importantly, I, b- I believe, uh, is that the fact that they are vulnerable as they proceed through that attack cycle. Um, so as things are, are ramping up right now, as we see these groups calling for violence against new targets, there definitely are opportunities for people looking to protect those targets, to focus on pre-attack behaviors in order to protect their facilities and their people from potential attack. Scott, break down the components of the attack cycle for us. Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly at the beginning, what what we're looking at is the idea of them identifying a target and choosing a target. As we look at this, uh, you know, in in practical purposes, you know, it's going to to generally consist of research. um, And and definitely that has changed a lot in the Internet age. You know, there's a lot of that research they can do, uh, you know, just remotely on Google or whatever. Uh, But then you also have surveillance. And so we're going to see them get out there to, to get eyes on the target, to look for vulnerabilities, to look for, you know, patterns, perhaps if it's a person they're looking at, or, you know, to look at patterns in the security forces, 
to look at uh, security technology, how guards are, are arrayed and that sort of thing. And so that they're going to use the information they gather then to kind of partic- uh, to, to pick a select uh, a particular target. So on a practical explanation, this would be, for example, in the Nashville bombers case, the individual perhaps driving by and choosing where to park the van or in the U.S. Capitol attack, the bomb maker deciding where to place the improvised explosive devices predicated upon some degree of reconnaissance beforehand. Am I correct with that? Exactly. So, uh, you know, it's basically, you know, figuring out who you want to attack and, 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 uh, you know, exactly where you want to attack and how. So that's kind of that, that, you know, that target identification and selection. Uh, So once you kind of uh, have identified your target, you've selected that target, what they're going to do then is is progress to the next step, which is planning and preparation. So so that's really getting into the, you know, the the real brass tacks of how, you know, how are we going to, to go, you know, at this attack and, you know, using your, your capital uh, example again. Okay. The the building's pretty tight. Maybe I'm going to leave a pipe bomb uh, in this alleyway or next to this stairwell based upon what I've seen. As as they kind of go through and start to develop that plan, they will also have to acquire any weapons or other materials they will need for that attack. And, you know, obviously if it's, if it's in a, a bombing type thing, they need to get the components to, to create the bomb. Uh, if it's going to be an armed assault, you know, we're talking about obtaining the, the guns and ammunition, uh, a vehicular assault, maybe getting the vehicle, you know, renting a big truck, you know, those sorts of things, putting together the components you need to plan the attack. And also, if it's a sophisticated attack uh, with multiple people, um, we will see them, uh, c- you know, conduct rehearsals. You know, they, they will uh, work together to develop the plan and, and to kind of, uh, you know, assign roles, assign duties, you know, kind of practice what they're doing. Uh, many times also during the planning and preparation stages, they will conduct uh, additional surveillance. Just uh, number one, to make sure nothing's changed since the last time that they uh, did surveillance, but also just to make sure that the plan that they've developed will work based upon what they're seeing at the scene. So really during you know a good portion of the attack cycle, we're going to have them conducting surveillance on the target. As you look at these kinds of attacks, Scott, and I know we've worked many, many together over the years. How would you describe pre-operational surveillance on a simplistic format? Well, basically, it's looking for those things uh, you, you need to plan your attack properly. Uh, so it's trying to, to gather that information that you need. And there again, you can get some of that online uh, you know, and today, whether it's you know, looking at, at, at maps, whether it's looking at Google Earth or photos, et cetera. But, but it's really hard to, to plan, uh, especially a sophisticated operation, just based on stuff uh, you can see on, on the line. So you really need to be there in person. You know, going back to our former life as, as agents, really, we, we used a, a similar process when we were planning for, you know, arrest warrants or, or executing search warrants. Uh, you know, we, we really wanted to go and, uh, you know, we could get certain information from online, but you really had to go and, and look at the house where you're going to be serving the warrants. So you could properly plan, how, you know, how the agents were going to storm the house. You wanted to look at things, you know, like the doors. You wanted to look at the locks, the windows, where there, you know, back entrances or side entrances we needed to cover with agents so that people couldn't escape. And, and there were just a lot of things that you couldn't see online. So you really wanted to have eyes on that house to make sure that you really understood, you know, how it was constructed, 
And, uh, you know, so you could really plan how to go and hit that house and, and serve the warrants successfully, you know, without losing agents or, or having problems. I know you've written a lot about this over the years, Scott, but walk us through how all criminal activity, as well as violence like we've seen unfold recently in Nashville and at the U.S. Capitol, includes a pre-operational aspect as part of the attack cycle. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about a simple crime, uh, you know, like, like a purse snatching or a mugging, or whether it's something more complex, you know, like a kidnapping or, or a terrorist attack. You know, they all have to go through these steps. Of course, in a mugging or a purse snatching, it's going to be condensed. You may see the person, you may follow behind them as you, you know, select them, whether or not they're an appropriate victim. And you may do some of your planning and preparation in advance. You know, this is a good place for me to stake out and, and wait for people. But you're still going to go through those steps, you know, and, and it really doesn't matter what type of crime. Of course, you know, for a kidnapping, for example, it's going to be much longer. Uh, you're, you're going to do that, that pre-operational surveillance over a period of time, looking for, you know, patterns in, in time and movement that you can exploit. Uh, but you're still going to do it. And, and really, you know, when we, when we think about threat actors, there's kind of, you know, two different types. You, you have kind of your stalking predators, you know, those would be like your kidnappers, uh, your terrorists. Then you kind of have more of, of the ambush predators. You know, so that would be more like, uh, you know, the, the crocodile in the watering hole that waits for the, the antelope and then just springs it. But, but even then, even those ambush predators are still doing that attack cycle and they're doing their planning kind of in advance, but they still have to go through all of these steps to really launch a successful attack. Now, let's flip the equation here. We've done a lot of counter surveillance together. We've done a tremendous amount of training in this space. We've supported protective details with counter surveillance operations. How does one look for surveillance if you're a security practitioner in support of, let's say, a protection team or you're trying to protect a corporate headquarters or at a executive's residence? Well, I mean, the good news in all of this is that surveillance is an unnatural activity, really, and it requires, uh, you know, really training and practice to get good at. Because of that, most terrorists and most criminals are really bad at surveillance. Uh, and, and, you know, the reason is, is they, you know, they don't have that training, they don't have that experience, and they just don't look natural. Um, you know, they tend to kind of lurk and, and stick out. Uh, of, of course, the reason they're able to succeed despite that lack of, of, of uh, surveillance tradecraft is the fact that people generally aren't looking for them. And those are also the type of targets that criminals tend to hit. They don't want to go after people who are alert, people who are, you know, quote unquote, hard targets. They want to go after the easier targets, people that don't see them coming, people that aren't looking for surveillance. And, and so, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, some of the elements of, of detecting surveillance, like, you know, seeing the same person over time, you know, different environments, uh, over distance. But, but you know, the, the, the most important one that I found over the you know, many years that we've done this is really focusing on that demeanor, you know, looking at, at the people and, and really looking for people who just don't look right, you know, JDLR, you know, when they have bad demeanor, they're, they're lurking. They don't have a reason for being where they're being or doing what they're doing. Um, and that generally makes it easy to pick up. And, you know, during you know, my career of, of looking uh, for hostile activity, I've seen everybody from, you know, purse snatchers to pedophiles to people wanting to conduct, uh, you know, armed attacks. And, and basically, the, the, the biggest thing that has stuck out on them all has been uh, their demeanor.
We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai slash center. That's ontech.ai slash center. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Let's let's dive a little bit into demeanor. Give me some ideas of how demeanor is so important when you're out on the street and, and those kinds of things you should look for. A lot of it is is body language. And one of the probably the, the greatest demeanor hit that we see in unskilled people doing surveillance, it, it comes from what we call the burn syndrome. They will tend to act in unnatural ways when the the target uh, that they're 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 looking at, or you know, in, in this case, maybe you know, if we're looking at you know a corporate target, somebody in the security team or an employee looks at them, even if that person doesn't know who they are, the person doing the surveillance thinks that they've been burned or they've been made, and many times this will cause them to kind of have a, a, a hitch in their gait, try to turn their face to try to walk the other way, just to do these kind of unnatural activities but because they kind of want to hide what they're doing. It's a very powerful feeling. And as you know from doing it uh, you know, uh, on the street, it's very, very difficult to overcome the burn syndrome and behave naturally. And even after you've been trained, after you've spent years doing surveillance, you're still going to feel it. But the skill is, and, and, and the, the surveillance tradecraft helps you to overcome that feeling so that you can continue to operate and look natural. Um, so really, I, I think that just those, those unnatural behaviors, you know, turning your face, uh, you know, jumping into a door, hiding behind something, putting the newspaper up in front of your face and, you know, in the old days, it's just these, these reactions that the burn syndrome causes is, is probably the, the greatest one that I've seen. Yeah, we certainly have some hilarious examples of that over the years with individuals trying to hide behind uh, telephone poles and uh, dropping down behind bumpers of cars and uh, just creating somewhat of a spectacle after suspecting that they've been air quote burned and observed by that target. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, but and that's also, though, why looking for surveillance can be so effective. Uh, you know, quite frankly, even if you don't pick up on them, if they they realize that people are looking for surveillance, it's going to make them feel uncomfortable and make the target that you're protecting seem to be a hard target and then make them divert to another target. And, you know, as we look at, at, at just the history of attacks, uh, you know, whether it's been, uh, you know, recently in the United States, things like the boarded plan to attack a church in Pittsburgh uh, last year, whether it was, you know, even in the past, Buford Furrow out in Los, Los Angeles, when he was looking at different synagogues to hit. Uh, we had a case in Miami when they were looking at, at hitting some synagogues. You know, when people think uh, that there's good surveillance, uh, when people see a hard target, they're going to divert to other targets. And, and that's you know, one of the things that, that as a security practitioner, uh, whether you're in an EP situation or whether you're in a corporate situation, you know, looking to, to protect a facility, uh, even you know, a, a house of worship, 
an educational facility. Uh, just by having people out there looking for surveillance uh, can be a, just a very, very powerful tool. I, I'd also add, too, that beyond uh, just your, your professional security staff, really educating your workforce and your, your people to what hostile surveillance is can also be a, just a very, very powerful tool because you know your, your workforce, your, your congregation, they have many more eyes uh, than the security staff has. Um, so you know, while you will get some uh, you know false positives here and there, by and large, you're going to find out that that you know once people are kind of educated uh, about what surveillance looks like and once they are looking for it, uh, they can really help to to be what you know what we call grassroots defenders, helping to protect against this leaderless resistance or, or grassroots threat. Yeah, that's well said. I think uh, historically, folks in our business at times have kind of uh, siloed those operations and and have not been inclusive enough to include others into the fold to to leverage those additional eyes and ears to be on the lookout for those kinds of surveillance uh, behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, of course, then, you know, we kind of got to that planning and preparation stage of the attack cycle. But then we also have, you know, after that, we have the deployment uh, of of the attack team kind of to the site or to the attack site that was chosen. Um, and that's also another chance to kind of pick up on, on that bad behavior, bad demeanor, um, and, and hopefully, uh, you know, see the attack before it happens. Because, you know, really what we want to be all about, right, is preventing. That, that's, that's the number one thing. Um, you know, really an ounce of prevention is worth a ton of cure, not just a pound of cure. So if, if we can, you know, see that activity developing and, and avoid or prevent the attack, uh, that that's really where we want to go. Now, you know, once the attack happens, can you perhaps react and uh, you know stave it off or defeat it? Yes, but it, it's better not to go there if you can. You know, it's it's much better to stay left to the boom and to avoid it than to have to react. Yeah, no doubt about that, Scotty. When we first started in this business, as you know, we're we're working with pretty much just our observation skills, uh, maybe binoculars. How has technology changed surveillance detection? Well, I mean, there, you know, there's a bunch of ways. Uh, number one, right now, there, there's some really cool programs that have come to help you with your CCTV cameras. You know, gone are the days when you need to have, you know, a bank of 50 monitors there with like two people looking at them. Uh, with some of these new smart technologies, they allow you to identify places that are of concern and, and whether that's for you know staging an attack or just areas where you're concerned about pre-operational surveillance, they can bring those immediately to the attention of your security team. Hey, there's activity in place X that we've identified as a potential surveillance perch. Check it out. Try to see what that is. And, and so some of that that CCTV uh, type stuff has been neat. And, and of course, I'd be remiss, on, especially on this podcast, right, with Ontic, uh, not not to mention uh, the the way that you have tools now such as Ontic, that, that can really help put all those things together, uh, whether it's your, your license plate readers, whether it's your CCTV feeds, uh, whether it's the reports from your surveillance detection teams, your EP teams. It allows you to kind of mesh that information together. Uh, it allows you to database it and, and really, I guess, transform things from, from information into intelligence. And so uh, you know, that's why I'm such a big fan of what you guys do at Ontic, because you know back in the day when I was a practitioner at the corporate level doing a lot of uh, hands-on protective intelligence, you know I just had some janky old SQL database, um, and, and now I you know I see what you guys have, and uh, you know it's it's like a Ferrari uh, compared to that Model T. 
Um, and, and so there really are a lot of fantastic tools now that, that can help security teams pull together the information that they're seeing and look at these indicators and really stay proactive. Well, I appreciate that, uh, those kind words about our platform. Where do you see surveillance detection going? If you had to sit back and look at this and say, let's pick uh, 2030, what's on the horizon, Scott? Well, well first of all, I, I, I just want to interject real quick. The, the one thing that I don't see happening is the concept of the attack cycle going away. Uh, and, and I have heard people speak and say, well, that, you know, in, in the era of leaderless resistance, it's no longer uh, an applicable model. And that's just false. Um, it, it doesn't matter if you have a, a large cellular organization uh, like the, the, the provisional uh, IRA, or whether it's a single jihadi or white supremacist working on their own or a small cell, they still need to go through all of these steps. And, and they're still going to be vulnerable to detection as they go through the attack cycle. But if people are watching for them and, and you know, I'm hoping and I'm hopeful uh, that as we move forward, uh, you know, people are going to continue to focus on being proactive. I believe we're going to focus on these, you know, pre-operational, pre-attack indicators and, and being able to observe them, catalog them and, and you know, uh, really then provide those those warnings, uh, you know, to, to our people so that we can avoid these attacks. And I do see the technologies getting better. I, I think that there's some pretty, you know, cool cutting edge things, whether it's, you know, other artificial intelligence tools helping us to, to better use our CCTVs and, and other, you know, video uh, type feeds, whether it's using drones or, or some other sort of platform to be able to pick up on surveillance, whether it's, you know, using, you know, cell phone information that, that's around our facilities or, or other things. I just think we're going to get better at, at uh, you know, continuing to, to look for these indicators and really putting them together. Uh, and at least that's my hope. Scott, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? I, I just think that, uh, you know, in, in this time, as, as we, you know, look at these, uh, you know, the, the problems going on around us and, and the world around us, you know, people are still going to be bound to this attack cycle and that we need to really pay attention you know, to these activities, these actions, these vulnerabilities associated with the attack cycle as we look to safeguard and whether it's, you know, safeguarding, you know, the seat of government and government targets or whether it's corporate targets now, as we see a lot of uh, corporations becoming the focus of anger, whether it's individuals, whether it's EP teams, it's all really applicable. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that security practitioners will really take these concepts seriously and apply them and use them to proactively protect their people and their facilities. Well said, my friend, and thank you for being on the OnTick Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks for having me, Fred. It's always great to talk. This episode was brought to you by the OnTick Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontick.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. 
You can reach us at podcast at ontech.ai or visit ontech.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.